You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the group think, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to the Conservative Conscience here at Conservative Review's Northern Command Center in Central Maryland. It is already Tuesday and we are in the thick of the week here on February 12th. I'm telling you, there is a lot going on. Um, tons of stuff on immigration, as always. Other stuff I want to get to as well. You, we had the president's speech last night, which I don't know. I don't know if it was worth uh, missing out on uh, wifey time last night, staying up that late to, to watch it. Um, but at the end of the day, he is our only messenger. We really don't have too many messengers. And that's really the question here. We've presented so much evidence here over the last number of weeks, speaking with so many different experts on the interior, at the border, from DEA, from ICE, from Border Patrol, sheriffs, putting together the full picture of the severity of our stolen sovereignty, how Americans are being taken advantage of, both by illegal immigration and the most brutal cartels, our, our security, our fiscal solvency, our schools, our hospitals, our resources. Who is speaking out for the forgotten American? And sadly, you know, it really is only the president. And, you know, for better, for worse, his messaging, which sometimes I wish would be a little bit more on message. Sometimes I wish he would have better people advising him uh, to stay on message, more conservatives around him. Uh, But there really aren't too many other people doing it. And I was trying to think who we could bring on to possibly give us some hope, someone who does have a little bit of power as an elected official. And it's been a while since we've had Chip Roy on. In fact, in the intervening time, he's become a congressman, Chip Roy. As you guys well know, he doesn't need an introduction. Chip, uh, as of January, became the congressman of Texas's 21st congressional district. That's the area that lies between San Antonio and Austin, very close to the border, not quite on the border, but certainly close enough to feel some of the immediate effects so I figured, what better time to bring back Chip to the conservative conscience? Hey, Congressman, you on the line. Kenya, how are you, my friend? I appreciate everything you do, uh, keeping the uh, good people of this country informed about what's really going on in this uh, godforsaken place known as the swamp. I, and that's what really frustrates a lot of us here, that I feel like the best I can do is just keep digging, digging, informing, informing. But then the inevitable question comes from my listeners. What do we do? What do we do? Um, Before we unpack that, I just want to go a little bit broader. Now that you've become Congressman Roy, gosh, something that you probably never expected to to think about. um, Is it worse or about what you expected from your colleagues and just in general what you're seeing there? Well, as you know, I spent more time than any human being should have to spend here already as a staffer uh, when I worked for both Senators John Cornyn and and Ted Cruz about seven and a half years here. And uh, I knew what I was getting into, and I'm happy to be here, and I'm happy to be representing Texas 21, and it's an honor to do so. Uh, What I would tell you is it is, in fact, worse than people think with respect to how people truly want to address the problems of the day and, frankly, the refusal to do so. 
Uh, you know, when I, just this morning, I was at a gathering of Republicans in which I made the comment uh, that we need as a party, as a group of conservatives in particular, to stand up and give a reason for the people to want to stand behind us, to support us. We need to explain what we stand for so that people won't have to do what I did last year, which was run against the Republican conference, to run against a trillion dollar deficit, to run against the lack of health care freedom and the lack of will to try to gain it, to run against effectively open borders. And when I said that, one of my colleagues took exception to the fact that I said that, saying that this was the problem, that uh, it was this was the division, that it wasn't true that those were the things that that uh, that the Republicans had given us last year. And to which I said, I think that evidence speaks for itself. Uh, we saw what happened with the votes last year. Now, I'm not saying that to be negative or pessimistic. I'm saying that to say that we have to stand up and lead the country based on a vision of what a sovereign, secure, free nation looks like. And that is not what the Republican Party is standing up and talking about. And now we see what's happening now with this so-called deal, where there it is a profoundly unserious approach to the level of danger and the level of corruption involving the cartel, cartels and the, la- the level of disregard for humanity that we currently see at the border. And that is uh, not a deal at all. I could go on and on. You get you get sure. my uh, observations today. No, and, and that's and that that's a good uh, point. That it's, it's worse than what you thought. Um, to just jump back quickly to specifically where you talked about. So you know, as you guys are listening to this, there is a tentative deal with the deadline approaching Friday night for government funding. And what we know now is that they're basically going to give the president and, and again when we say they it doesn't just mean the democrats republicans at least on the senate side appear to have signed off on this senator richard shelby from alabama you had uh shelly moore capito from west virginia uh john hoven from north dakota who by the way was the lead sponsor of the gang of eight amnesty bill he is on that committee and they came up with a approach of 1.375 billion in border funding enough to build 55 miles of fencing that will be limited to the Bullards, okay, um, in the Rio Grande Valley, fine. And then in return for reducing the number of detention beds by 17.5%, when as of now, based on the trajectory, they're not going to have enough beds to even hold the ones that they're holding. And then the courts say they can't hold more than half of them anyway, uh, the family units and the, and the so-called UACs. There has never even been an effort. Here's what I don't understand, Chip. You came in after Democrats took over control. So they're going to say they don't have control of the floor. But I'm old enough to remember that for two years they had full control and they never even brought forth a standalone bill to address any of the problems from sanctuaries to the UAC loophole to the asylum loophole to Flores to any of the stuff that's truly causing the problem. As a standalone bill, much less putting in a budget bill. And then now they say, hey, look, you know, Pelosi controls it. Well, I mean, I I can't disagree with any of that. And I think what I'm trying to remind people here is that, look, we, you know, we're in the minority. We're going to message against the absolute uh, asinine policies that the Democrat Party are putting forward right now that uh, do nothing. Truthfully, truly, they, 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 they very purposely are trying to avoid securing the border, very purposely trying to avoid enforcing the rule of law. And we know that. 
So we're in the position of messaging against that, and that's fine. But if we don't have a a collective will and a collective vision for what we're going to try to do as a party to carry this country forward and agree on that and shout it from the rooftops and then act on it when entrusted with power, then I don't know what to say. I don't know how we look people in the eye and say, look, last year when we were in charge, we busted the budget caps by about 140 or $150 billion. And now we're talking about, well, we got to at least fight to hold the CR at the existing baseline. This is what's wrong with Washington, right? We've got caps that will kick in next year. We ought to follow those caps, which will then restrict spending. We ought to force DOD to make the tough choices about all of these, uh, 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 the wear and tear we're putting on our men and women in uniform and the tools that they need and, and, and the resources that we have to have to defend our country. And then we ought to get serious about making choices of guns and butter. But this Congress never wants to make the hard choices, and it does not matter which party you're in. They are, they are really, truly not serious about fiscal responsibility, security in terms of securing our actual border, or, or, or fighting for actual freedom and healthcare freedom. Okay, so th- that's where I want to I want to take it next to immigration. Um, I, I don't mean to be a downer, but what you just said on healthcare, on the debt, it is really those two issues in particular are really force multipliers. Um, just like immigration is for our sovereignty, security, and society, that is what's going to determine our fiscal sovereignty, solvency, and our economy. But. It, sadly, it's not a surprise that they're not going to deal with that. Um, they, they just have no – there's no courage to deal with that. And I didn't have expectations in the short term we're going to deal with it. Although, you know, I think we do have to revisit this fight as the debt ceiling comes closer because I think that's going to be another point of leverage. But for now, the reason why I've been focusing on immigration is is because, look, okay, a lot of people are hooked on the bennies. A lot of politicians are hooked into the constituencies and special interests hooked on the bennies. So they're not going to do anything on domestic policy. But when it comes to sovereignty, every American, if they would know what is going on, wouldn't want this. No American wants foreign nationals coming in, taking over their schools, taking over literally the few health clinics they have in southwest New Mexico where they don't even have full hospitals. And even when they do, they're they're small rural hospitals now being flooded with Central American patients taking away from Americans. You have drug cartels pouring in not just drugs, but but the the skilled drug traffickers and criminals beyond belief. In Texas, I could give you tons of examples of, of people recently arrested for DUI um, that had massive records of sex trafficking and even voting illegally in our elections. We're being taken advantage of. Um I don't think anyone wants that. To me, that's an easy political issue. That's an easy thing to articulate because you don't have to cut any programs. If anything, you're actually saving programs. Let me give a second part to get your response. Everyone is very worried about a government shutdown come Friday night. And I was thinking like, okay, what's a government shutdown? Well, you're scared that certain services won't be provided. Well, isn't it a shutdown, the fact that we have a number of areas where now the services are taken over by foreign nationals pouring over due to cartels. Isn't that an easy issue? Do you see what I'm saying? You don't have to go against the grain of dependency with this issue. So that's why I thought like, if there's one thing we could accomplish, if it's not going to be in the realm of, of fiscal conservatism, shouldn't it be sovereignty? 
the whole notion of sovereignty is something that we clearly need to revisit as a country and what it actually means to be a true sovereign nation. It is our duty as a sovereign nation to enforce our border, not just for the benefit of our citizens, although I think that is the core responsibility of our country, but actually for a country that has a great, a great and, 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 uh, 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 well, you know, a reputation for wel- welcoming immigrants to come here, we ought to do so responsibly. We ought to be very clear about the processes for coming here because the people who follow the law and the rule of law ought to know what they're doing, uh, ought to know what they're expecting, and ought to be rewarded for following the law. And those who break the law should not be. And it then endangers not just the immigrants, then it obviously endangers those American citizens here, like Jared Vargas in San Antonio, who lost his life last summer at the hands of somebody here illegally. Uh, The idea of sovereignty is at the core of a nation state. And as a republic, and as the leaders of the republic, Congress has a duty to stand up and defend this country. And it's shirking its responsibility to do so. And the cartels are the uh, glaring example of what we're allowing to happen as we allow our neighbor to the South to be overrun by cartels. That's irresponsible on a part of our State Department and our overall national security and and foreign policy status, stature. It is irresponsible that we're ignoring what the cartels are doing and profiting and running 400,000 individuals through the Rio Grande Valley this year and using and selling girls into the sex trade. It's irresponsible to ignore the gunfire that American citizens can hear uh, uh, off their porches across the river in Reynosa because of what's happening with the danger of the cartels or the 30-odd thousand people who have been murdered by cartels in Mexico and how dangerous that is. It is irresponsible to ignore that Tamaulipas is a level four state and that it, that means it is a no-travel zone, which means it is more dangerous than Honduras or Guatemala or many of the countries where people would come here. And it is on par with Syria. It is on par with places that we wouldn't dare send people. That is literally across the Rio Grande from uh, McAllen and Brownsville. That is unconscionable that we are allowing that to happen as a nation, and it it belies the very notion that we're a sovereign nation. That's what I don't understand, how somehow it's not kosher to care about your own people. Um, You know, if someone sneezes in the Middle East, and I know that's a whole discussion in and of itself, but we will send troops there indefinitely, trillions of dollars at the drop of a hat. And yet, like you said, there have been more people murdered in Mexico last year than in Afghanistan. So even before we get into the fact that these very people are orchestrating a flow of illegal immigration and criminals and migrants and gangs and drugs that have done demonstrably more to our country than Islamic terrorism, and I'm a hawk on Islamic terrorism, but even just the fact that, like you said, your constituents, you're one district away from the border, but you're you're right there, and – you have the worst unspeakable violence. I mean, I don't recommend you guys do it, but if you have, if you want to, you go to Breitbart, Texas, and they they take pictures of this stuff, and it rivals anything you'll see in the Middle East. It's somehow. What do you think is the failure of our nation, of our political class, of our media, 
that has failed over time to give over this stuff, I'm finding that I'll say a lot of things very blissfully on Twitter. Like, drop something like, hey, you know, they're busting in hundreds of people from Mexico to go to the schools without checking status, without checking if the cartels, because the cartels use middle school and high school kids driving drugs. And like, people are challenging it all like that's a conspiracy. And I didn't know what to say because everyone in law enforcement, Texas DPS knows that everyone in Arizona sheriffs knows that, but clearly we failed to give over the severity of this tarnation because the more I look at things, it never talks about immigration status. When you see a drug bust, I just did a major piece now on that Lanta meth lab, 400 pounds of meth that was discovered. It was a Jalisco cartel meth that was lab that was set up in a leafy suburban neighborhood. Um, full of diesel fuel in there, and these were all illegal immigrants, but you wouldn't know it um, if, if I wouldn't have done that interview. You have a bunch of people killed from DUIs or crimes. They'll say uh, Laredo men or, or Austin men uh, arrested, and they won't say it. And like you said, this all gets back to sovereignty. It matters if it's an external problem versus an internal problem. And I just – what is it that our colleagues have failed over so many years – to give over to people the severity of what's going on on our doorstep. So my two cents is that this is a product now of more or less 15 solid years, if not more in the realm of 20 to 25 years of a uh, misguided uh, attempt by the chamber of commerce and by those who purport to stand up for a you know, strong economy, but in truth are really looking for cheap labor and are willing to ignore the very perils that have been created, the situation and the crisis that we now see. This is something that should have been solved under the numerous opportunities or under the numerous Congresses and presidents and opportunities we've had over the last 20 years to get this right by Republicans uh, who, you know, ostensibly want to stand up for security. And we could have done so in a way that would have increased and improved the availability of labor if we had created a system that works. Instead, we buried our head in the sand of the country, not all of us, but some, ignoring the problem, ignoring the rising power of the cartels, ignoring the continued flow across our border in a post-9-11 world, uh, ignoring the extent to which our asylum laws and bad rulings, such as the Flores decision, would empower the uh, 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 cartels to be able to manipulate our laws to then drive more traffic here. All of these things were things that many of us saw and predicted were possible, but yet there was a large community that wanted to bury their head in the sand because they wanted to hide behind the need to fix uh, and change uh, uh, or, or have uh, a free flow of labor coming across our border without fixing the laws in question. So I think that's at the core of it. I think now it's pretty rich to see many of the very same people who have been obstacles to border security standing up now and, you know, loudly proclaiming on the floor of the House of Representatives what we need to do to secure the border. It's laughable. These are the same people who are fighting those of us who were trying to secure the border a decade ago. And I'm frankly just getting tired of seeing them do it. So that leads, leads us to the here and now. Um, if you were president... What would you do now faced with this predicament where it's pretty clear that if you just look at the contours of what they're debating to do, it's is it three pennies or four pennies of funding for what's fundamentally a policy problem, not fixing any of the aforementioned policies? 
Um, the question is, will they even make it worse? The Democrats were very smart, art of the deal. They actually introduced a whole new front of getting rid of ICE detention beds. So then that allowed them to kind of come in for a second round and look like they're pulling back and being magnanimous and, and you know, compromising. And they'll actually come out even ahead of, of the deal. So nothing that needs to be done will come out of Congress. I mean, that, that is quite evident right now. What would you advise the president to do as the most legally and politically sound way of addressing this problem now? Uh, were I advising the president of the United States right now, I would tell him that he uh, should, number one, I would uh, make very clear, very loudly, that we have an emergency situation at our border. I would talk about the extent to which the cartels have a very strong operational control of our border, are profiting in the tune of tens and even hundreds of millions of dollars by moving people across the border, that we will see upwards of 400,000 people come through the Rio Grande Valley alone this year, of which 200,000 will likely not be apprehended, and 90% of those who are apprehended will be caught and released. I, therefore, as president, would say I'm not going to follow this wrongheaded Flores decision. We are going to uh, hold family units together. We will not separate families. We will hold them together, but not release them. We will process them under our asylum law. We will continue to build defense with the resources we have. And I would continue personally. I would just keep doing two-week CRs until I just made the Democrats eat the fact that they don't want to secure the border. And I wouldn't blink off of that and I would keep doing it. I would use the 284 uh, uh, language that he's got uh, under USC Section 284 to uh, fund more uh, fencing, to stop drugs from flowing across our border. I would talk about the crisis in terms of fentanyl, in terms of all the drugs flowing across. And then I would hold in my hip pocket, if Democrats refuse, uh, going further than that with an emergency de declaration, or I might even go ahead and declare it right now immediately and, and use those powers. But you've got to use those powers in connection with directly with what's happening with respect to the cartels and the danger that is imminent at our border to American citizens and to our sovereignty. But this sort of beating around the bush and working on this deal that's not really a deal, I think undermines the whole idea of, of the of a, a emergency crisis. And uh, I think that uh, it takes our eye off the ball. So I'd just be very specific, very open about it, and I'd get busy doing the job of securing the border. But most important of all, none of this is going to get fixed if we don't undo the damage being caused by Flores and the broken asylum laws. Yeah, I mean, that that's the whole enchilada. That That is the whole enchilada because um, in the Yuma sector, I'm sure you've seen CBP put out videos. That's where you got the 18-foot bullards, which is essentially what they want to build elsewhere, and they're going over that. They're going over that the cartels are going to um, they create an economy off of the Ninth Circuit, and and quite literally, and that's what they'll do. So you know, if you have a border wall, but you don't fix your border, meaning you could have a wall, but you don't have a border. If you have the courts say that our border is 7.8 billion people in the whole uh, globe, well, then they'll come. Um, you know, the 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 only uh, fence is very is a very good uh, deterrent. If you don't want to get caught, I think it helps for some of the criminal activity. Um, guys like all these, you know, reentrants that have a criminal record here and certainly don't want to meet an agent, but the ones that do, you're not going to stop that. Um, and that's what concerns me: the gradual construction of a couple miles here or there fencing. You know, you build a little bit more in Rio Grande; they're already moving west to New Mexico, flooding it there. Um, 
do I hear you saying essentially that the president needs to take a holistic approach that don't just look like you're a thief in the night. Oh, I want to build a fence. That's my goal. Build a wall and Congress didn't give me the money. So I'm going to find authority, which he likely does have. Um, but then, you know, it looks like it's all political. It's just for the fence versus no, I'm going to not just declare it as an emergency for that specific loophole, I'm going to really act like it is an emergency on all levels. And maybe that will be one of them. Yeah. And, and unfortunately, I'm going to have to run because I got to go down to uh, go deal with an issue on the floor. But I, look, here's here's the thing. I believe that there is a pretty significant amount of room for the president legally to declare an emergency based on the powers Congress has previously given to the executive branch. I think that is statutorily the case. Uh, I think this is very different than what we saw with President Obama unilaterally granting benefits and making up uh, a status for individuals he did not have the power to do. Congress had not given him that power. Congress has given the president, the presidency, the power uh, with respect to an emergency declaration. And there is a whole lot of latitude, latitude and deference given to the president in that respect. That being said, I believe it is incumbent upon the president of the United States, no matter what party he or she is in, to make a very clear case for why the emergency is uh, being declared, why the appropriate use of federal power and the president, power of the presidency to do it, and then to articulate that in a way that will, of course, then withstand legal scrutiny. But more important than that, will withstand the scrutiny of the observers in Congress in Article One, saying, all right, you're taking money that was appropriated generally. You're moving it over to use for this emergency declaration, and you have a reason for doing it. Um, you know, that is important because uh, it's our duty to check the president. So he's just got to be, uh, I think, very clear in what he's saying about what we need to do on the border with respect to the drug crisis, the humanitarian, humanitarian crisis, and more importantly, the power of the cartels operating over our border profiting at the expense of the American citizens, profiting at the expense of, Im- of the migrants who seek to come here. And uh, we need to be very clear about that and continue to uh, do our job. So um, that's what I think the president ought to do. And that's what I advise him to do uh, and what I am advising that he does. And, and before you run down, I know you got to go right now. Last question. Um, this is all about articulation. Do you feel as we watch your uh, fellow freshmen from the other side of the aisle introduce their own vision, this Green New Deal. And we can laugh at it all we want, but they have a vision, they run on it, and they actually try to implement it. Don't you think that there's a void among your colleagues of what is it we stand for? Don't we need some sort of our own document, agenda, whatever you want to call it, contract with America 2.0, some sort of contract reaffirmation of the social contract of what it is we're supposed to be doing for the citizens and how we're going to do it. I think so. Although I do think we get trapped sometimes in believing we've got to have something like that. In other words, I'm a yes and a no on that. We as a party, we as conservatives, more importantly, need to stand up as I've articulated and suggest as you just articulated um, that, that our vision for the country is going to make us stronger, freer, safer, make lives better, put more food in the mouths of people, put more medicine in people's bodies, put more roofs over their head, put more clothes on their body. These are the things that we believe our uh, policies will do. 
We need to be happy about articulating those. We need to be clear about why we're articulating them. I don't know that we need a great new deal. Our deal is called freedom. Our deal is reflected in the Declaration of Independence. Our deal is reflected in the Constitution of the United States. Our deal is reflected in their 250-odd years of success and greatness that this country has put forth. Our, our ideas are reflected in the millions of jobs being created out there right now, despite an overbearing government. Our ideas are reflected in still having, I think, the greatest healthcare system in the world in terms of what it produces, in terms of cures and great yeah. doctors and all that stuff. But it's being degraded by a federal government interfering with it. We need to get busy saying you, the world is your oyster. It's like uh, Napoleon Dynamite, right? When the, when the guy's running for president, he goes, you know, vote for me and all your wildest dreams will come true. Right. That's what we believe. We believe in that, not because of what we'll do, not because of what we're going to do for the American people, but because of what they'll do for themselves. And if we don't get back to talking about what the American people will and can do for themselves, if government gets out of the way, then we should just quit. We should turn the keys over to the Democrats and say, keep growing government. But if we're going to keep doing this Democrat light, small government horse manure, the Republicans have been shoveling for as long as I can remember, then we deserve to be in the ash heap of history that we so richly deserve as a party <laughs> if we won't stand up for freedom. Indeed. I certainly can't add to that. Yeah, we'll have to talk more about this idea of putting putting out an agenda. But I hear what you're saying. I mean, our agenda should be self-evident at this point without any gimmicks. Um, thanks as much as as always for, for joining us. I know you're busy. Give him a hell chip, all right? We will, Daniel. Keep fighting. We're, we're going to win this. Just uh, keep your head up and, and uh, keep holding these guys accountable, including me. Oh, believe me, we'll uh, hit you over the head if you betray us. Well, there you have it. That was Chip Roy, yeah. Congressman of Texas, District 21. Chip is really something else. I didn't know how much time I would have with him, but if I had more time, I would have asked him more about his trip to the Rio Grande Valley. If you could, if you could watch what he's doing, you'll see he's really very aggressive on this. Um, always privately messaging me, uh, worried about the next steps and everything. He truly has not changed one bit. If anything, he's become more hardcore. Uh, since running for office. So we're proud of him, but we need more. We need more like him than actually recognize the urgency and realize that what we're doing is not working. I got to scoop up that quote that he just delivered at the end. The horsemen or Republicans have been shoveling since ever since I could remember. I mean, <laughs> that's the type of mentality that's missing from most Republicans. And by the way, um, you know, I, I can't reveal which member of Congress he was talking about, but I do know which one he was talking about when he talked about in that meeting before when 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 that member was saying, what do you mean? There's no this is what's creating division when we run against our own Republicans. I mean, these people are just so dumb. And these are the people that just concocted that crazy deal. Now, thankfully, it looks like Trump is opposing it now this is a very fluid situation so depending on when you're going to hear this broadcast i don't know what the latest is going to be but you know sorry to parachute in the beginning and middle without giving a introduction to that just because i wanted to have chip on the show at the beginning that's when i was able to get him but to walk this back a little bit um this deal that they worked out so first off before the deal the committee that was crafting this deal, the Republicans are Senator Richard Shelby of Alabama, Shelley Moore Capito of West Virginia, 
John Hoven of North Dakota. And there's one other I can't remember offhand, but oh, Roy Blunt of Missouri. All these guys support amnesty. I mean, do you remember Corker Hoven? As in John Hoven, the senator that's on this committee, that was the Gang of Eight bill. So, I mean, there literally is no fundamental philosophical foundational disagreement on sovereignty between the two sides of this negotiation. That's what bipartisanship means. Republicans and Democrats that get together, Republicans want liberal stuff, Democrats want liberal stuff, and they split the difference. So here's what they offered. They said to the president, I'll give you $1.375 billion in border wall funding, enough for 55 miles of fencing. Even that fencing cannot be solid concrete. It can only be bullards. It's only for the Rio Grande Valley, where increasingly we need it in New Mexico. And then in return, it actually lowers the number of beds, ICE detention beds. And as you well know, that's a backdoor to catch and release because if you put a cap on the amount of beds they could have, God forbid, should we make illegal invaders sleep on the floor, that would mean that they cannot apprehend them, and that would mean that they have to release them. So Democrats, as I mentioned before, had a brilliant art-of-the-deal tactic that Republicans and Trump haven't been doing. You always start off asking much more than you want to get. And then therefore, when you pull back, you look like the magnanimous one. You look like the one willing to compromise while still getting ahead of the game. So Trump starts out this whole thing not even talking about the 800-pound grill in the room. And that is the asylum loophole, the teenage migrant loophole, as in unaccompanied alien children, the UAC uh, loophole of the courts, and the Flores Agreement that requires them to release all children brought here, even if it's not their parents, after 20 days. And therefore, now you have to release the parents too, according to this California judge. And by the way, I mean, that problem is much worse than you think. The intel that I've been fed on the number of families that are fake families, kids that have been kidnapped as a result of this. This is what happens when your compassion is lawlessness. But anyway, anyway, that was never made a part of this discussion. This is a policy problem, as we've noted many times. Border walls work as the second step if you have a border that you enforce and you don't give 7.8 billion people rights to come here and demand things, so therefore they they have to sneak in and therefore they don't want to get caught, and therefore a border wall will make it hard for them to avoid detection because it would take a while to get over. But if they want to get caught so they could use the court-driven loopholes that we're not fixing or disregarding, then a border wall will at best slow things down, but it won't stop anything. So right away, Trump never demanded the policy solutions. He only demanded money for the wall. But then even then, he started off not with the $25 billion, but $5.6 billion. So now what the bipartisan transgender Republicans and Democrats are proposing 
is 1.375 billion. That is enough to build 55 miles. That's actually less than the 1.6 billion, which is about 65 miles, that Senate Democrats already signed off on last June. So th- th- this is already below the baseline. Trump demanded what 5.6 billion. Democrats said only 1.6 billion, so they called it a day at 1.375 billion. Meanwhile, I hear Rush Limbaugh is on the air this afternoon while we're recording here saying, oh, it's the best we can get. Are you kidding me? Now, he probably didn't get the memo because it's just fresh as of early afternoon that Trump actually panned it, thankfully. You know, because had Limbaugh known that, he probably would have, you know, said the same thing. Trump said he's not happy. Um, But the broader point here that I want you guys to listen very closely. Some might suggest that, look, well, this is the best you can get. Okay, this is the best you can get. Or you have nothing to lose. I understand 55 miles is a long way from the 850 miles we wanted, but, you know, it's better than zero. Why veto it? It's not bad. There's two points you have to understand here. Two points. Number one, we're still trying to iron out the deals, and some of it we might not know until there's text, and I guess there might not be text if Trump hopefully blows this up. But what Democrats smartly did is, not only did Republicans not make this about our policies, they made it about their policies to make the policies even worse and cut detention beds. Now there's two types of detention beds. There's two there two there's two types of ice holdings, ice functions. There's ice on the interior rounding up people in all 50 states that are caught here illegally. And then there's ICE's facilities near at the border where the people that are immediately caught by CBP are handed over to ICE to be detained in their facilities pending whatever is going on there at the border. So the D- Democrats had this ludicrous thing of abolishing like interior enforcement, which they knew they weren't going to get. Now they get to look like they're all, you know, in the spirit of compromise by saying, okay, fine, we'll relent on that. So it looks like almost like we gained something, even though really the whole baseline, the, the, the contours of what we were fighting over moved over, always moves to the left. And what they did was they still cut by 17.4% the level of beds on the border detention side of things. So Trump asked for 52,000. Currently, they have 49,057. This agreement would place a cap by the end of the year. You couldn't have more, end of the fiscal year, September 30th, you couldn't have more than 40,520 detainees. That's 17.4% less than what they currently have And the search has not plateaued yet. And indeed, if you don't fix the problems, if this is all you get and you cut the detention beds, they're going to have to release thousands of more people, which will therefore create a circuitous death spiral for our sovereignty of more people coming. Because the more they know that you can't hold them anymore, that's, that's the whole enchilada. 
So the lack of interior enforcement or the lack of detention, the lack of ending catch and release, or in this case, making it actually worse, is a worse problem than the 55 miles of border fencing gradually constructed is a solution. So that's the thing. This is not like, okay, Daniel, it's a joke. It's 3% of the border, but 3% is better than zero. No, you're getting 3%, but for worse problems. It would be the equivalent of someone has hemorrhaging and you do something to them that would put a Band-Aid on the hemorrhaging instead of fixing the hemorrhaging while also actually aggravating it. The issue is not the Band-Aid. The issue is stop the hemorrhaging, which is the policies. But there's another point, too, that speaks to the broader issue that we've been talking about until now. And that is, as part of this agreement, Trump would then have to agree to sign an omnibus bill. Meaning, once this is what he gets, and this is it, this is your only shot at it. So now they would pass a seven-month omnibus ending this whole showdown all the way until October 1st. And that would end his leverage and take the border issue off the table. The most important thing we can do now, we have one bullet in this gun, and we got to wait until we have the best shot. And by continuing with, as Chip said, short-term CRs, even if we get nothing for it, it's better that than a long-term bad deal. So have another three-week CR, four-week CR. And that will keep the border as the top issue in the body politic and allows us to continue trying to make the case. And the more stuff that inevitably, unfortunately, will continue to go on and the border is going to get worse, we could shove in the face of the Democrats and hopefully pressure more. Which leads into the final point, which is that some might say, well, no, no, it's not just 55 miles. Trump is going to use the, you know, the whole business with Section 2808 of the Emergencies Act, go the executive power route and reprogram funding and get more that way from DOD, from, you know, defense funding, from Pentagon funding. But, okay, so if you're going to go that route, then go that route. Don't take a bad deal. You need the concurrent leverage of short-term CRs while you're doing the executive power, because part of the point of the executive power is to leverage the Democrats. Well, you know, if you don't give me what I want, frankly, I'm going to do more executively anyway. But if you pun, if, if you seal up the budget for the remainder of the fiscal year, there's nothing left to go over. So you don't want to give up that leverage unless you get something really big for it, which there's certainly not. This is what Rush Limbaugh is missing. And he, frankly, whatever. Legislation and policy is just not his thing. Never really was. But that's the broader issue here. So I'm going to have an article out today detailing eight things he needs to do executively. A lot of them we discussed on the show already. But again, for example, what's one of my agenda items? That Trump needs to immediately invoke the Administrative Policy Procedure Act, which even according to the crazy courts would allow him to terminate DACA within 90 days. And then that's his biggest leverage over Democrats. Part of the problem with the Democrats is, like I said, they already have de facto, because the administration doesn't want to touch DACA, they already have de facto amnesty for for the so-called dreamers built in. The drug trafficker dreamers built into the baseline. So unless you give them something much bigger, a massive amnesty bigger than that, they have no reason to deal with you. They already have amnesty. They already have work permits for three years. 
if Trump threatens to yank back what they feel they already have, that will get them to play ball. But again, that's only if there is a live ball in play, a.k.a. a short-term CR with a pressing deadline, where the Democrats, on the one hand, feel the pressure of the deadline, but they also fear the loss of DACA. So you don't want to give up that leverage. That's the key. This is a 20-year battle we're having now, as Chip said. Let's continue having it. It's not worth just ending it over 55 miles of fencing, especially if, as it appears, this actually might make the key policy of catch and release worse by reducing not the interior beds, but, but the border holding beds, which will induce more catch and release. So that's the key element where we stand now. And that's the thing I just wanted to say for today that we see in real time on this day, Tuesday, February 12th, the unbelievable power of the conservative movement and conservative media. What has been one of the cardinal rules of this presidency we have pointed out from day one? That the president often is not set in his ways. He can go either way. He often will not lead unless we lead, but too many in our movement won't lead and they'll just follow him. And it's a self-fulfilling problem. Everyone in the media is now talking about this point now, and they're not wrong, that whatever happens will hinge upon what conservative media says. And there's no doubt in my mind that because Sean Hannity came out right away, often he just you know serves as Trump's rear end and follows. But last night he led, and without looking at anyone else's commentary, I don't know. I mean, I know he follows me on Twitter. Maybe you saw some of my stuff. Probably said it on his own volition that the deal was garbage. So Trump at a cabinet meeting was like, yeah, I'm not happy with it. We need to add to it. He stopped short of saying he's going to veto yet and we'll see what happens. But I'm just telling you, it's because of that. And there's no doubt in my mind that Rush Limbaugh, who started to defend it, probably when he went on air today, didn't see Trump's comments because it happened concurrent with, I guess, the opening of his show. So that's the circuitous cycle of failure we're in. Now, all I can do is try to just get my stuff around and get it to as many people as possible and hope these ideas seep into the administration. But that's what it is. You can't assume he's going to do the right thing. Remember, the point man for all of this is Jared Kushner. The guy who released, who who got Trump to go back on his promise and support a bill with multiple leniencies for cartel drug traffickers And that's the final thing I wanted to get to today, folks. We'll link to it in our notes today. My interview with Robert Murphy, the special agent in charge of the Drug Enforcement Administration's operations in the Southeast. So he's uh, headquartered in Atlanta. He covers, what is this? Covers Georgia, North Carolina, South Carolina. I think Florida is in a different jurisdiction. But those three states... And take a look. He gave me a lot of generous quotes on the record, and I'm very thankful for that. He's a really good agent. But this is the problem we have 
when you know we don't have a movement focused on the right things. The stuff in this interview shouldn't be novel, but unfortunately it is. And there's really three broad themes that you're going to see from it. Number one, the entirety of the drug problem in this country is a Mexican cartel problem coming from the border and driven by criminal alien networks in this country. Everyone they rounded up in this big bust, 400 pounds of meth in a very nice suburban area, by the way, Milton, Georgia, almost rural, where all these illegal aliens were making, and they were highly trained by the cartels to reconstitute the liquid meth back into crystal meth. So what they've been doing is they found it's easier to produce the meth, turn it into liquid. You bring it in like, you know, it could be a soda can in cars. And then they'll have their operatives here before they traffic it, go and produce it into crystal meth. They have acetine, um, diesel fuel. I mean, you saw the guys there. You look at the pictures. They need hazmats hazmat material to come in there because it's all hazardous materials in a nice suburban neighborhood. This is what they're doing to our country. Um, I didn't put this in the article, but he was telling me, I mean, the environmental problems they have. Often they divert water sources to do this stuff. You'll never hear the environmentalists complain about what the cartels do to our national parks, growing marijuana in our national parks, diverting uh, water sources, and then the labs they set up. One one of the key moments of this debate, of this not debate uh, interview, wasn't a debate. He agreed with me. Uh, he was very passionate about this. Is when I asked him, I said, "All right, well, you're telling me that the dry marijuana, the dry cocaine, comes in by the back through the backpackers, the mules between the points of entry, but you know the liquid meth you're saying comes in at the points of entry. So you know, I asked him, what would you say to the media's contention?" that, well, any border security wouldn't really help because we have points of entry anyway, and they'll bring it in through the cars. Obviously, as we've said all too often, if you stop all the drugs between points of entry, that's success, and you make them drive it at the points of entry where we're more likely to catch it, we can invest more resources there. But I used to say there's a second half of this. Listen very carefully because this is a little bit nuanced here. I used to make the argument that and I still make the argument that there's a whole nother half. This is interior enforcement. Sure, you can get the drugs in, but in order to have a lucrative network that operates in perpetuity without detection in these cities, if every person we suspect of being illegal would apprehend them, and then if we find that they're illegal, we'd immediately throw them out, you wouldn't be able to operate a sustained network. But Agent Murphy told me something even stronger. He, he made an even stronger point. Even without interior enforcement, it's still border enforcement. He he made the argument like this. He said, we're arguing about the wrong thing here. We focus on the product. It's not the product. It's not the drug. Just, just like we say, it's not guns. It's the people. It's the criminals. Guns don't kill. People kill. A war on guns doesn't help. You have to deter the people. It's the same thing with drugs. So what if drugs come here? 
You need people trafficking it, producing it, having the labs, collecting the um, profits and sending it back to Mexico. All of that is done by illegal aliens. They all come in between the points of entry. They all sneak into the country. That's the thing. When we say drugs come over, it means drugs and the ones that push them. Focusing on drugs without the people is like focusing on bullets without a firearm. It's it's meaningless. These aren't some schleppers, he told me. These are guys that were highly trained by the cartels to cook this stuff and reconstitute it back into solids. That is something that they were they were trained to, to come over just for that. That's what's coming over every time you see. What is it? We're up to 60 groups now of 100 or more at once coming in through our border, tying up the border agents while they serve as hospitals and bed and breakfast and daycare centers. That's what they're bringing in. That's the problem here. And this is amazing hearing this from a DEA agent where you think they're, they'd all be focused on the product. This is not an ICE agent. But no, he made it very clear. This is all an illegal immigration problem. This is what he told me. It's not the product that matters. The product doesn't sell itself or produce itself. It's the people who make the cartel run, collect the cash, do the distribution, engage in violence, and run operations for the cartel. Those are what's essential. The product is an afterfact. Without the people, the cartels have no success. So he told me if we were to bust up illegal immigration, they know where these people are. The cartels would essentially be bankrupt. They'd have to recruit Americans to come down and traffic for them. Maybe you can get some, but that, that, that's a much harder thing to do. This is all an external problem. That's number one. Number two, what he told me that was very clear, as we've noted very often, this is not a prescription problem. He said prescriptions aren't the problem. It's not pain patients. It's all the illicit drugs that are are being marketed to people for um who, who are seeking a buzz. And it's a national security problem. He noted how, like I was saying, the fastest growing problems are meth and cocaine, which are psychostimulants, the opposite of painkillers. From a pharmacology standpoint, it doesn't make any sense. But that's the thing. It's not a healthcare issue. It's a cultural problem of people just seeking a buzz and they're spiking with all this stuff and killing them. And now you have the hazmat stuff. It's chemical warfare with the analogs of fentanyl. It's a poly drug crisis. That's the important thing here. And finally, number three, the point I got out of this interview as we've been driving home is that the people that these guys are arresting are high-level people working for cartels, mainly foreign nationals. They're not some schleppers on the streets, Americans that really are just seeking to support their family and we're locked them up for 50 years. The guys that are going to get hard time are people like this. So therefore, under this stupid First Step Act that Jared Kushner got Trump to sign off on, these are the people that are going to get the windfall 
of criminal justice reform. Think about that for a minute. At a time when we should be solving the problem with the cartels, we're actually incentivizing their behavior. But it's all because we don't want to speak the truth about this protected class of illegals that are destroying this country. He mentioned to me that the people in Milton, Georgia, the politicians, were upset that they made such a high-profile thing of this. They didn't want to draw too much attention to it. Now, that's the thing. He noted that with the economy growing, people want their houses built quicker. They want the cheap labor. Everyone is okay with their illegals. The problem is everyone else's illegals. But this is the problem. If we're going to sell our country down the road for cheap labor, you're going to get a country not worth living in. It was amazing. I watched last night on one of the cable shows, Bob Menendez. You can't make this up. He said, you know, we shouldn't be treating all these illegals who are arrested for DUI as criminals. Could you imagine that? The people that die in this country, the amount of people that you never know die because of illegal alien DUIs because they won't identify them as illegal. It happens every day in this country. And he thinks we're too tough. I guess he would know as a criminal himself. It's kind of a high bar for what's uh, considered a high-level criminal. Maybe he ought to sit this one out. We have criminals as politicians. Never forget, organized crime cannot exist without political protection. And when it comes to illegal immigration, that's really the ultimate organized crime in the most public way. It can only exist if the politicians on both sides want it. And that's the problem now. And that's the same thing with the drug crisis. You solve the legal immigration issue. You're not going to, again, the goal is not to keep 100% of drugs out of the country, never have anyone who takes drugs, but it's the crazy epidemic levels we have now would immediately end. That's the lesson for now. Again, we're going to be watching this crazy deal. Very fluid week. That's why we're going to be working overtime. Make CR, conservativereview.com, your one-stop shop. Thanks so much for listening. God bless you all. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience. 